I'll be reading from 1 Corinthians. If you want to turn to that and stand, beginning in verse 15. 1 Corinthians 16, 15. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints, that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. And I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. Maranatha, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. We'll pray. God, we do thank you for um, the life that you have given for us through your Son, who gave himself so freely and fully that we might have our sins washed away and might live in relationship with you again. We also thank you for the life that you have given us, that we can walk in and, and know you, and have your very life, Lord, coursing through us to be the sole explanation for um, the life that we live. And I pray, God, that our hearts again would be just drawn to you, to yield and to believe you, to love you, and to walk in faith. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we're finishing up now, 1 Corinthians, and these are Paul's last words. Um, kind of has a, a final checklist, it seems, that he's going through and, and, and just wrapping things up and a few things that he, that he wants to yet say. The last two verses um, that we looked at last Sunday, he's talking to the men in particular, and he said, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love. And, you know, I, I think that Having now gone through all of 1 Corinthians, and most of us, if we've been Christians for any time, we've, we've at least heard about this book if we haven't spent time in it, and we know its reputation that, that the Corinthian church was a pretty sorry church. There was a lot of bad stuff going on in this church, and if you, were, if you had your choices of churches to pick from, this is probably one that you would not go to. Um, and so you, it, you can be left with the impression that there are really just, um, there were no exceptions, just a sorry group of people. But that would be inaccurate because Paul now, in verse 15, after saying to the men, basically be good men, he's saying in verse 15, and by the way, there are some good men among you, even in this church. And he singles out three in particular, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Archaicus, Archaicus. And he says concerning Stephanus that he and his household were the first fruits in Achaia to believe. And so they've been Christians probably longer than anyone else in the Corinthian church. And not only did Stephanus come to Christ, but his whole household came to Christ. 
And that's significant. It means that, that likely, not only is he a man of faith, but his own faith relationship with the Lord is contagious. And those that are in his household, this would have been family members as well as, as servants and others that, that were a part of, of, um, of him, his business, perhaps, or finance, financially, but they were under his care, they were in relationship with him, many of them have come to faith in Christ. That's no small thing, particularly in this very pagan society. But this man's faith is so real and so genuine, it has been contagious. Others have come to faith. And this was the guy that Paul mentioned chapter in, back in chapter 1 where he says, I baptized this guy and his household. Sometimes when different church traditions have picked up on that in chapter 1, Paul baptized Stephanus and his household and they've taken that to mean that children can be baptized because Stephanus and his household um, were baptized. And obviously, a household, there must be children there. That's a bit of a leap. And here we see that Stephanus um, and his household have believed. And so that's the problem with infant baptism is that infants do not have the ability to believe. And these people, part of his household, have believed, and they have also been baptized by Paul. But Paul is, just singles this guy out as being a, a good man of faith. And he says he, that, that he and his household have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. This is a man who's not just occupied with himself, but he's occupied with others. And he is one who, who looks for opportunity to minister to other people. And Paul says that we as a church ought to subject ourselves to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. And then he speaks also of, of he says, I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. So these three men have come to Paul. They probably came with, with provisions to help him in practical, material ways. But more importantly, he says in verse 18, they have refreshed my spirit and yours. There are, that is just such a, a, a gift um, to be that kind of person that you leave encounters with people not having taken from them but depositing into them. Where people feel refreshed because of those encounters with us. I... Um, Know that in my part, especially, that is a work of God's grace because um, I tend to be more um, on the Eeyore side of things. You know, it's maybe good today, but tomorrow it's going to be bad. Um, that doesn't refresh people's spirits, I've learned over the years. Um, and it is, it is that Barnabas type of personality where people are encouraged, they're uplifted, they're, and as he says here, to the core of your being, your spirit, you're refreshed. And that ought to be, I think, not just a goal, but, but it is something that we should want the Lord to be developing and manifesting through our lives. That we aren't just complainers, we're not sourpusses, that, that we just, we're, we're, we're hopeful, we're positive, and, and, we, and we look at life as opportunities to encourage others, and people are refreshed because of it. I remember being um, with Major Ian Thomas years ago after he had suffered a heart attack at his hill, 
Um, he blamed me for that, said I caused the heart attack. Uh, I was preaching at the time when his heart attack took place, and so that's why he said I almost killed him. Um, but he spent a week in the hospital in San Antonio, and I was going in regularly and visiting with him, sitting at his bedside, and I was hearing war stories like I never heard. In fact, um, his wife had never heard them, and, and I wished I'd, I'd recorded them because there were just a lot of things that, that he was talking about that he had never shared before. Um, but I remember one thing in particular, it wasn't a war story, but it, story, but it was kind of just summarizing what war is like. And, um, and he says, you know, he, he said, first he said, it's, being in the military and being in war, he says, it's, it's a life of extremes. And he says, everything is either extremely chaotic and extremely fearful, or it can be extremely boring. And he says, there's just not much in between. But then he followed up and he said, he says, but in life, he says, things are never quite as bad as they seem, nor are they ever quite as good as they seem. The truth is somewhere in between. And I say that because it reminds me of this church here in Corinth. It looks like a pretty bad church. But in the midst of this church, of all churches, there are at least three really good men. And they are men who refresh the spirits of other people. And so we want to be careful about how we evaluate churches and, and ministries and all, and not just, just point, paint with too broad of a brush stroke and just say there is nothing redeemable there. And we shake the dust off our feet and walk away. That's probably too extreme that the truth is usually somewhere in the middle. It's not as bad as it seems, and it's not as good as it seems. The truth is in the middle. That's true for all of our families, as well as for our own personal lives. But don't you want to be categorized with these three? Servants, devoted to ministering and caring for others. Workers, laborers in the work of the ministry. Providers seeing the needs of others and stepping in to fill the gap. And perhaps most significantly, those who refresh the spirits of others. What a gift. And then he says, coming into his benediction here, the churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. What an amazing couple. Jewish couple, tent makers. Paul first was introduced to them when he was himself in Corinth. He was there alone. He was fearful, discouraged. And he came across this couple. Same religious background, being Jewish. Also Christians. Also had been persecuted. They'd been run out of Rome because of their faith. <clears throat> also tent makers. Just the, couldn't, just the perfect people at the right time to encourage Paul. And wherever they went, they, were, they had a house church in their home in Corinth. They had a house church in their home in Rome. They had a house church in their home in Ephesus. Wherever they went, they said, hey, folks, you can meet in our house. That's remarkable. Not because um, people don't tend to be hospitable, though that can be the case, but because of the potential persecution that would have come to them, the bullseye it would have drawn on them 
at a time when you didn't necessarily want to be known publicly as being a Christian, and you certainly didn't want to be the gathering place for other Christians. If you recall, during the persecution of Nero, and, and even later, beyond Nero, Christians were meeting in the catacombs in Rome because there was no other safe place to meet. And yet this couple says, come to our house. That's remarkable. And then he says, all the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Dan already made reference to that this morning. There's five times that that's mentioned in Paul's letters. He seemed to kind of be a little fixated on kissing each other. Um, We know that there is some cultural aspects to that, thankfully. And um, I, like Dan, would be turning my face to the side. Um, But it's... It is, what's, be, what's behind it, though, is, is very clear. There, is, there ought to be, between brothers in Christ, between sisters in Christ, a true heartfelt affection and love that transcends any transgressions that have taken place because love covers a multitude of sins. And we see each other, the first thought is not to walk across the street, but the first thought is to in our culture, to give a hearty handshake, to embrace each other, to let bygones be bygones, and to know there's something more important than the things that have happened between us, and that being Christ and his shed blood and what he has done to make us one. Then Paul says, just so everybody knows that that he actually wrote this letter, he says, I'm I'm signing off on it now. And he took up the pen and and wrote his own name across the bottom of the letter. And then what a happy way to end this letter. He says in verse 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. It's been really good writing to you guys. Can't wait to write another letter to you. I mean, who says that? Finishing up their letters. If you don't love the Lord, well, just be accursed. Maranatha. Maranatha means Lord come. And maybe he's saying that Maranatha in the sense of, yeah, it's going to be really good to have the Lord come, so Lord come. Maybe he's saying it in the sense of when the Lord comes, he comes in judgment. So be accursed if you don't love the Lord and the Lord's coming. Thanks, Paul. It really blesses me. My spirit feels refreshed. Um, I don't know what to do with that. I know over over in Galatians chapter 1, Paul speaks twice in verses 8 and 9 of Galatians 1 about, he says the same thing. He says, if anyone comes to you with a different gospel, a gospel other than what you've received from me, even if it is an angel from heaven, let him be accursed. So Paul uses this word, and he obviously means it. What it means is the difficulty. He's not saying, let him lose his salvation and go to hell. Because Paul emphatically believes you cannot lose your salvation. But he also takes very, very seriously the significance of being in a relationship with Christ. And Christ, as we've seen in this book, functioning as the head, as the very life of the believer and of the church. 
So significant is it for us to yield to him. He says, love him. In John, that we looked at John um, 13 and John 15, Jesus says, if you, if you love me, not only will you love one another, but you will keep my commandments. And so the expression of love is obedience. And, and Paul has just written the word of God. So don't too quickly just say, well, it's just Paul. It's not just Paul. It's God speaking. And so for you to take your wisdom and place it above the wisdom of Paul, you're actually placing it above the wisdom of God. You are dismissing the word of God. You're not loving him. You're not loving him. Anytime we come to God's word and say, well, I'm not so sure, we aren't loving God. Because the natural impulse of the lover is to yield and to obey. And it's not to say, well, I'm not so sure. It's to say, okay, I'm happy to yield. I am happy to obey because I love you. And if, if there is one who professes to belong to Jesus and yet does not love the Lord Jesus as manifest in obedience, then Paul says, let him be accursed. Now, you recall there have been four other times in this book where Paul was, was being especially sober-minded, and he makes reference to Christians dying. This is where I'm reviewing a little bit. The first time was back in chapter 3 where he talks about eternal rewards, and, and he talks about the place of faith and, and the distinguishing between um, faith and works and the difference between carnality and spirituality. And he says a life that is lived by faith will result in rewards, those rewards being um, um, gold and silver and precious stones and not wood, hay, and stubble that will be burned up. And then he says that it's possible that you would go into the, the judgment of your behavior, the judgment seat of Christ, the bema seat of Christ, and have all that you've done be judged and it all be burned up, but you yourself will be saved because the foundation of our lives is Jesus. But then Paul says, but if anyone destroys the temple, and we saw the temple there is not the temple of our body, but it is the temple being the local church. And the only way you can destroy a local church is by turning it into a carnal enterprise, a flesh-driven Enterprise where the spirit is not involved. It is totally men's work. Well, you've destroyed that church. And Paul says, whoever destroys the church, the temple, God will destroy him. He's already said the foundation is laid. And even if everything should be burned up, he himself will be saved. So he can't be talking about losing your salvation. He must be talking about losing your life. In chapter 5, he mentioned a man that was, that was um, carrying on with his stepmother, sexually involved with his stepmother, a degree of immorality, Paul says, that was not even common among the Gentiles. And Paul says, for my part, I have already handed him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh in order that his spirit might be saved. How can you hand someone over to, the, for, to Satan for the destruction of their flesh without them dying? It, it could result in that. 
in chapter 10, and after finishing three ch chapters on Christian liberty, and, and really confronting these Corinthians that they have been so focused on their liberties and their rights that they're just basically, they, not just basically, they are departing from Christ himself because Christ is not about himself. And when we make the Christian life about ourselves, we've turned against Jesus himself. We, we are mocking the cross of Jesus Christ when we think everything is about us, when we live narcissistic lives that are focused on our rights and our liberties. And so Paul gave five examples where Israel that had experienced the deliverance of God from Egypt, that they had all been baptized into Moses, and five different examples where Israel, when they thought they were safe, they lost their lives. And Paul says to us, if you think you stand, take heed, lest you fall. And he means, in that context, lest you die. And then in chapter 11, the Lord's Supper. We make it all about us, and we are not considerate. And, the, and, I, and when I preach through this, maybe you recall, this is not just about the Lord's Supper, but this is about a lifestyle. Because the gospel is not just when we come together to commemorate the Lord's Supper. But if I am living a life that is totally oblivious to everyone else, and all I am is focused on myself, I am denying Jesus. And I am... And I am and I'm presenting a contradiction to what the gospel is all about. I am forgetting the death of Jesus Christ. And as I forget his death, not living in the cross, from the cross, in light of the cross, but I'm denying Christ, then Paul says, some of you in this church are sick, and some of you are weak, and some of you have died, because you are failing by the way you live, to remember the death of Jesus Christ. So maybe this is the fifth time where Paul, when he says, let him be accursed, is saying, just let God bring you home. If you are not going to live a life loving Jesus, then just go be with him. Because what good are we to anybody if we claim his name and yet don't live a life where we love him and obey him, we're no good to anybody. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. And we certainly need God's grace just for loving him and obeying him. And that grace is with us. My love be with you all. I haven't said these things out of, out of anger or shaking my, the dust off my feet towards you. Paul's absolutely committed to these people. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. I promised you a summary. So here it is in five minutes. Paul started out this letter with the, probably the longest salutation of any of his letters, if you recall. Nine introductory verses. And in those nine verses, 11 times he mentions the Lord Jesus Christ. And he also talks about all that we are in Christ, the church of God, and on and on, the people of God, saints, and, and on and on. He's focusing on the believer's identity with Jesus Christ, all that Christ is and all that we are in him. And this church was not 
a good example of that. And so the question is, how, what does it mean to be one with Christ and to be identified with his death and resurrection? Paul's going to say in chapter 1 and chapter 2, he says, we do not preach ourselves, we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. In chapter 2, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So if we are identified with Christ, then it is incumbent upon us to know what does it mean practically to be identified with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. And I believe that's what this book is about. It is 16 chapters about the practical implications of having been identified with Jesus Christ. It means that we are not the subject of life or the means for living life. Life is not about you, it is not about me, and the means for living the Christian life is not us. It is Jesus Christ. So preaching Christ crucified and being identified with his cross means, in chapter 1 and 2, there should be unity within the body and not divisions that center around men. We are one with Christ, therefore we ought to be one with each other. There should be oneness between the message we preach and the life we live. If we preach Christ crucified, we need to live as though we have died with Christ. We preach Christ, therefore we live a crucified life. The message is that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, and the means for preaching is death to personal ability, and we trust in Him who causes the growth. In chapter 3, is spirituality versus carnality. Carnality is simply living according to the flesh, personal ability, and not from Christ. If we are crucified with Christ, and we are, how do we seek to live from self rather than from Christ? Christ lived in dependence upon the Father, so must we. All judgment and all reward is based upon that simple principle. Where are you living from? Are we living from self, or are we living in faith and dependence upon Christ? In chapter 4, is really about humility, a proper perspective on self and ministry. Paul says, we are just merely servants. We preach a simple gospel. We are simple men, and we are trusting in God to bring about the salvation and the growth that only He can bring about. He talked about living within the boundaries that God has established of Scripture and not exceeding what has been written. A humble life will never go beyond what God has said in His Word. It is God reproducing in us the dying of Jesus versus the Corinthians who are focused on being rich and being filled and not lacking in anything. Paul says, look at our lives. Our lives are manifesting the dying of Jesus. Your life is all about being rich and full. In chapter 5, the cross of Christ means dealing with sin, not ignoring it. The man that was with his stepmother. It is, grace is meant to lead to life. It is not grace for grace's sake. And the church ought to be about a grace that brings us out of sin and to life in Christ Jesus. In chapter 6, the cross of Christ means not insisting on your right to sue someone when you're wrong. It means being more concerned with Christ and his body than with ourselves. It means knowing that we've been purchased with a price and we do not have the right to use our bodies as we would choose, especially in in respect to sexual immorality. In chapter 7, he talked about marital status. And he covered all the bases. He talked about being single. He talked about married. He talked about married and unbeliever. He talked about being divorced. He talked about remarriage. He even talked about being widowed. 
The cross of Christ, I believe is Paul's point, should impact all of our thinking and all of our behavior in respect to marital status. It means husbands and wives have a duty to each other that comes before themselves. The cross pertains to the, to the bedroom for married couples. It means that life should not be defined by marriage status. I am not significant or insignificant because of what my marital status may or may not be. We can live contentedly regardless of marriage status. We can live within the confines that God has established for marriage. Because God, Christ, is our life and not marriage. He is our identity, not our marriage status. And 8 to 10 is about Christian liberty. Because of the cross of Christ, we have the freedom from sin's power and the freedom to obey God. Life is no longer about our rights and our freedoms. We can put others ahead of ourselves. We can live a life free of the law, but we are under the law of Christ. We understand that to forsake the selfless way, insisting on our rights, is to forsake Christ and to disdain the cross. And this opens the door to divine discipline. We do all, Paul says in chapter 10, to the glory of God. It is a total reorientation of ourselves. It's no longer about ourselves. It's about Christ and his glory. The cross of Jesus Christ in chapter 11 means that the body, the church, functions with order because it functions under his headship. That even as Christ is the, the father is the head of Christ, even so the husband is the head of his wife. Role distinctions are maintained. We live respecting and honoring others ahead of ourselves, or we fail to remember his death and invite divine discipline. In respect to the spiritual gifts, and three whole chapters on that, 12 through 14, because of the cross, we recognize that giftedness is not about us. It's about Christ getting the glory and his body being mutually edified. We recognize that the Spirit gives gifts for Christ's glory, not ours, and that the Spirit determines the gifts and the ministries. We don't. Therefore, there is no place for boasting. We recognize that love, which is the motivation for the cross, is greater than gifts. We recognize that all gifts, even prophecy, is submitted to the headship of Christ. We are willing to submit, even in silence, to his headship in the exercise of the gifts. Chapter 15 was all about the resurrection, which of course begins with the crucifixion and death of Christ. He died for our sins. A selfless act. Romans 5 says, while we were still helpless and ungodly, at the right time God sent his son for us, who demonstrates his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He was raised, and we are raised to life in him. Therefore, there is no reason to fear death. Flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom, nor will the flesh life inherit the life of Christ. We live dying to self in identification with Christ. And we live in hope of the resurrection, which is what causes us to be able to be steadfast and faithful, long-suffering, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, because Christ lives. And we are 100% identified with him. I've taught this book for many years at His Hill, and it's never impacted me as much as it has in preaching through it this last year of how it is really about the cross of Jesus Christ and what it means to be a 
to be identified with him and for the cross of Christ to impact every single area of our lives. The theologians like to tell us that about the doctrine of total depravity, which means every single aspect of our life has been impacted by sin. Amen. Then is isn't any surprise that the cross of Jesus Christ should impact every single aspect of our life. If every single aspect has been impacted by sin, then the cross of Jesus Christ is meant to impact every single aspect of our life. It is not a compartmentalized Christianity. Everything, everything has to be related to Jesus Christ, his cross, and his resurrection. I'll close this in prayer. Father, I thank you again for this time together this morning. Thank you for the, for the good time, God, of just in quietness, without being hurried, of remembering Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf, particularly his death through the Lord's Supper this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for the heart of Nan and leading us to Jesus and what it means to love you. And I thank you, God, that this is not just a, a, a theme that occurs here and there, but it is the one theme of your word. You love us. You've given your son for us. And there's life only in him. May you rule, Lord Jesus, over every aspect of our being. In Christ's name, amen.